Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. Yeah. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Another edition of Theology Matters with Palou. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and it uh, feels good to be back. I've not done a show, and uh, man, it seems to be about a month now. I've uh, just been busy with school, 
and uh, Ratio Christi, which uh, which I'm part of, is uh, finally coming to a close uh, for the semester, so I've been busy with that. We were able to hold our uh, event, Is God a Moral Monster, on the campus, and it was it was on that Monday. <clears throat> so kind of the way the campus works where I'm at, it uh, pretty much turns into a ghost town before the <laughs> before the holidays. So um, it, we had a good turnout, though. 80 to 90 students came and uh, had a great uh, Q&A, about an hour of Q&A. We actually had to... We actually had to end the Q&A, and there were still a lot of people having questions, but we just ran out of time. So thanks to those uh, who prayed for that event. It went well and uh, got a lot of interest. In fact, the following night when we uh, held our, our meeting, we uh, had several new students show up and were interested in talking about the faith. So praise be to God for that. Uh, just real quick here before I bring on our first guest, uh, if you have not liked us on Facebook, you can go to uh, facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze, and on there you're going to find uh, all of our shows. We've uh, been doing this for about two and a half years now, and uh, have done pretty much every topic you can think of regarding theology and uh, apologetics. We've hosted several debates. Uh, in fact, the last show we did... Uh, it was uh, actually two debates uh, we did with uh, a couple of Roman Catholics. And so, uh, like our stuff, you'll find our shows there. We've done debates with atheists, Mormons, uh, etc. So be sure to like our page to get the podcasts. So with that being said, let me go ahead and bring on our guest. We've got a, got a great show for you guys tonight. The second uh, part of the show, we're going to bring on uh, my friend Tony Arsenal, who actually uh, was in that debate with uh, Roman Catholic uh, when he was debating justification. But tonight we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. But first I wanted to bring on a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Pete Bertolero. And he is a pastor, theologian, and author specializing in historical perspectives uh, behind holiday traditions, Christian mythology, and issues dealing with uh, authentic masculinity and the development of man-making communities. Uh, Dr. Bertolero is a pastor of a growing church in Fresno, California called the Legacy Christian Church. Uh, and he is also the author of uh, Green Tree, which is a book uh, for those who desire to celebrate Advent in the Christmas season. And so uh, I met, uh, well, I, I discovered Pastor Pete on his YouTube channel. So I was just looking through the YouTube channels one day and saw his videos and was really uh, excited to, to hear what he had to say on certain uh, theological topics and uh, masculinity and being a man and just uh, just a great guy. Uh, Dr. Bert Calero, are you there? Yes, sir, I sure am. And it is great to finally talk to you. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, Devin. It's great. I love what you're doing and... Uh... I like uh, what you're doing in a variety of different ways, but I'm just so thankful and grateful for someone who is steeped in defending the faith and in apologetics that also has a kind soul uh, like you do. So it's just great to be on the show with you today. Well, I really, really definitely appreciate that. I'm not butchering your last name, am I? <laughs> no, sir, Bertolero. But you know what? All right. Pete, just call me Pete. Okay, all right, we can do that. 
So, you know, I, I just uh, have really enjoyed your videos. I've enjoyed our conversation. And uh, Pastor Pete sent me uh, his book, Green Tree, and uh, just full of really good information. And he also has a, some devotions for Advent also that he, that he sent me. So I thought it would be a good idea to bring him on and just talk about some of this uh, stuff because kind of as Protestants, Advent is not something we – really celebrate. We kind of look at it as kind of a Roman Catholic thing. And I think Pastor Pete has some really good uh good stuff in there that we can we can learn from. So just gonna was gonna ask you a few questions, Pastor Pete, of uh, kind of what was your life like growing up as a kid and and uh, how did you become a Christian? Um I was uh born in Washington D C. I'm Irish and I'm Sicilian. And uh unfortunately oh. Uh, born in a, a family where my father was a uh, violent alcoholic, and um, uh, it was a common occurrence for him to beat my mother and uh, to beat her unconscious, to try to burn her face with cigarettes, the whole bit. <clears throat> so that was my background, um, uh, being Irish and being a, uh, Sicilian. You know, being a Catholic is uh, pretty much in the cards. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic school. Uh, My mom, uh, mercifully, the marriage finally got annulled after my dad almost killed my mom in front of me. I was a little boy, about four or five. But um, uh, being annulled, there still was shame and there was uh, a scandal of sorts in a small town as we were in in New York. And um, so there was kind of a separation of the way I was treated in the church, the way my mom was. But uh, I was an altar boy, uh, knew Latin, went to Catholic school up until about the f- uh, fourth grade. My mom remarried. My dad was in the military. I was adopted. And we traveled around, went to uh, Alaska for a while, came back uh, to uh, Vacaville, California, where my dad was stationed, uh, went to high school there, I pretty much walked away from the faith. Uh, at that time, being that I was the only one going to church uh, anyway, so I, I basically uh, was angry with God and walked away from uh, Catholicism and the church and everything, got involved in all kinds of different religions and practices, I was taking drugs a whole bit, but I was an athlete. And so uh, my I played football and I wrestled and got a, uh, my dad got stationed to San Bernardino and uh, I opted to play junior college ball for a couple of years. Um, I wasn't real big. I was about 6'1", and I weighed about uh, 235. But I was real strong, but I, I didn't know if I'd play uh, first string in college ball. So I went to play uh, a couple of years in San Bernardino, ended up getting a full ride to uh, Fresno State. And uh, so I was playing football, had wow. a couple couple of pro football teams were looking at me. The Probably the most losingest team <laughs> at that time was the St. Louis Cardinals, and uh, they were interested in me. But um, uh, because I was squatting a lot, I was a big, strong kid, uh, weightlifter, and uh, used to squat seven, 800 pounds. And I was tearing up my knee that way and also taking a lot of blows in football, had weakened my left knee and in order to progress, and especially in order to do well um, uh, in uh, college ball, I got a surgery. It was supposed to be a simple surgery. It turned out to be life-threatening. They'd 
gone in and my knee was pretty much shattered. They had to reconstruct my knee. And uh, in those days, they put you in a cast right after surgery, elevated your leg. And um, within three days of that time, I was in bad shape. The cast had turned black. I had gangrene. I had staph infection. Three blood clots in my lungs. And um, I did not have a very good uh, prognosis of making it. Um, I ended up spending uh, six weeks in the hospital. I went from 235 as a playing weight, went down to 200. Um, lost my hair, most of my hair. My girlfriend at the time, Sujay, who's my wife now, um, had lost her mother when she was 13, and it was real hard for her to come and visit me because it could have been her last visit, and so she shared Christ with me. Wow. And uh, basically, I... Um, violently screamed her out of my room. Wow. Um, I had I had blood clots in my lungs, so I couldn't breathe but gasps. And um, I felt terrible about how I treated her. She's down there, she's singing, playing guitar, singing to me, giving me comfort, and sharing Christ with me. But um, I was just so angry, you know. So that night, and I hate, I hate to get mystical and all that. So um, you, you asked me, I'm just, I'm just going to lay it out. That <laughs> night... Go right ahead. Go right ahead. I, I, I sneezed three times and therefore couldn't get my breath back. And I couldn't breathe. I, 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 there's no room to breathe. And so I couldn't get my breath back. And I rung the bell, rung the bell, and uh, started to pass out. And as I was passing out, I felt that my body was going down below the mattress of my bed but my perspicuity my my vision was remaining level wow. and somehow that communicated to me that some part of me was going to outlive my death and i was afraid wow. and i remember what sujay had shared with me about christ and i, I just wanted some token god was alive because I, I thought he was dead and uh i just cried out and said god if you're there make yourself real and um you know, for me personally, conviction came. I felt his presence in the room, and I was so broken at what I understood to be the reality of God that um, I I said to the Lord, thank you for making yourself real, and I don't deserve to go to heaven. Send me to hell. You You have the right to send me to hell. I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve to go to heaven. And uh, one of those prayers I was really grateful he did not listen to. Um, peace filled <laughs> yeah. my heart. Uh, I, I just I understood he was not going to opt for that prayer, and uh, so as far as I knew, and from what Sujay had shared with me, um, I asked him to forgive me through the blood of Christ and to save me. And uh, immediately the uh, the event ended. The nurses had broken into the room, um, and they got me stabilized. And from that moment, Devin. Uh, from that moment, I got I started to get better. I started to, this is gross, but I started throwing up blood, which was a good thing to do because it, wow. it was coagulating. I had three blood clots in my lungs, and uh, I just the the infection had broken. I was packed in ice uh, many times a day because I, I was at a, almost 105 degrees because of the gangrene. And in a from that time on, I got better. Um, I, with as much knowledge as I knew, reformed 
some of my behaviors, but it wasn't until about a year later when I took an evangelism explosion course by Dr. D. James Kennedy that I understood the ramifications of what happened that night, and uh, by and I got baptized. I've been serving the Lord ever since then. I started to read the Bible, uh, lost my football scholarship um, uh, because I couldn't uh, I, I couldn't get over ghost pain in my knee, and any time anybody fell near it. I was freaking out, so I ended up losing my scholarship. I think that was the providence of God. Um, just devel- devoured the scriptures. We were Sujay and I had gotten married at that time. We had a ministry, and we were leading all kinds of people to Jesus, and that was just it to me. Teaching the Bible and sharing Christ with people was you. It was it was utopia, and uh, in the midst of that. I sensed the leading and a call from the Lord, and uh, went to co- went and finished out my college degrees and uh, got a I got a bachelor's degree in hermeneutics. I got an MDiv degree, and then I got a, a PhD in uh, pastoral counseling, and I got a, a, a THD in demonology uh, with an emphasis on wow. theodicy and uh, uh, you know the whole the whole subject of angelology. Satanology, demonology, diabology, um, with an emphasis on theodicy, and uh, started pastoring in 1981. I married the perfect woman uh, for that. Uh, we, we raised a family. All my children uh, were baptized around four or five. They came to Jesus. Everyone in my family were better Christians than I was. My kids have never walked away from the faith. They serve in my church now. My uh, oldest son, Ben, is one of my associate pastors. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate. Very, very, very fortunate indeed. Wow. What a story, man. That is, uh, that's incredible. I mean, you just, uh, it's encouraging, you know, to hear other saints, uh, just how God has worked in their life and moved in their life and, uh, you're a, you're a real blessing to me. I really consider uh, Pastor Pete as a, as a mentor to me. I just uh, wish you lived closer. <laughs> uh, wouldn't we get ever... in trouble if we did? Yeah, we probably would. We probably would. Let me uh, let, let's let me ask you this. I guess we better move to the to the next section here. In your book, uh, Green Tea Tree, talk talk a little bit about that. And I've got it in front of me. We can look at some of the chapters, but uh, first of all, what is Advent? Uh, a lot of Christians and Protestants may not even know what it is. Is it just something that Catholics do? What is it? Uh, why should we do it? And uh, we can we can get into some of the chapters if you like. Okay. Uh, well, let me just say that Green Tree as a title um, gets its name from two ideas. One idea was Jesus' own self-reference to being a green tree in Luke 23, 26 to 31, where he was uh, on the Via Dolorosa, and he said, if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Meaning, if they're doing this to me now, right here in my first advent, when I'm alive with you, what's it going to be like when I'm not here? And uh, so his, self, his self-reference his self as the green tree, and then using that um, in talking about one of the symbols that seems to be most controversial uh, with uh, Bah Humbuggers, and that's uh, the the pine tree or the evergreen tree that serves as uh, the main symbol in Christmas, the Christmas tree. And uh, that being of the evergreen family, 
I just kind of juxtapose both ideas to point to the person and work of Christ. Um, and so, uh, very quickly, the Bible has one set of plants that are are basically the dominant metaphor for sin and cursed God's curse on sin, and that is the family of thorns, thorns, briars, and thistles. And the Bible has only one tree family, only one tree family, that points as the countersign uh, uh, of the curse, and that is the evergreen family of pine trees, myrtle, box, cedar, uh, um, uh, what have you. And, and so... Um, the the idea of green tree is that the Christmas tree, in fact, uh, is not a pagan symbol that we have committed the sin of syncretism in incorporating into our festival, but but predates and prefigures the uh, reversal of the curse of Genesis 3:15 through the work of Christ, and so I dare say. I, and I don't think I'm bumping it up against heresy in saying that the evergreen tree that serves as the Christmas tree prefigured in symbol form the work of Jesus on the cross. And wow. uh, it does so because it is the predominant Old Testament symbol of reversal. The thorn uh, tree, the thorn and the thistles and the briar, they stand for reversal too, but negative reversal, taking people from a place where they've been blessed and because of their sin and idolatry and so forth, God reverses that and says, now no more water, now it's going to be drought, now it's going to be famine, now the thorns are going to infest the ground, borrowing from the, the Christmas carol. And so that's re reversing a blessed state to one of a state, um, or what R.C. Sproul calls when he talks about it as proximity and remoteness. When God is shining his face upon us, he is the nigh God, not just the high God, he's the nigh God, and we bask in his favor. And when God turns away from us because of sin, as an act of judgment, there's darkness, there's there's drought, there's famine, and thorns infest the ground or the landscape. Thorns are the symbol. Uh, of curse and the evergreen tree family is the symbol of God's blessing, and it's 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 nowhere as pronounced uh, in that scenario, then Isaiah chapter 55, verse 13, where it's one of those instead of prophecies, instead of thorns and thistles and briars, there's going to spring up the box tree and the myrtle tree and the cedar tree. All those trees come from the pine tree evergreen family. So that's where I get the title from. You didn't ask me that. I'm giving it to you for free. Okay. So, hey, I'll take it. <laughs> Ed, Ed, listen, first of all, your question can be answered, but I have to be careful, because we're forbidden in Romans chapter 14, 4 through 6, to judge any brother, any Christian brother, for celebrating a particular day or not celebrating a particular day. It's sort of like wine, uh, eat Good wine boy. and meat. You no, know, it's, it's one of those negotiable things. If you want to eat meat, that's fine. Um, if you are offended at eating meat, I won't eat meat when I'm with you, you know. But I, you can't condemn me for eating meat. I can't condemn you for not. And it's the same with these days. And so when I wrote my article for Charisma Magazine, you should have seen the hate mail I got from Christians. Uh, really? Keeping on me the seventh levels of Dante's hell uh, because <laughs> I am leading people to hold a law, to seize back from the secularists and the pagans. 
a day that was commemorating the birthday of Christ and celebrating it in a way in which Jesus is central, Jesus is preached, and he's done so in such a way that it builds a nostalgic memory in our children as they grow older of the person and work of Christ. they condemning me to hell. So first off the bat, I am a strong proponent of the Christian calendar, the liturgical year, if you will, and of keeping that calendar intact and using that calendar as a discipleship mechanism that moves people through the year, commemorating the great acts of Christ uh, uh, when he was here during the first event. I'm a strong proponent of that. But you don't have to do it. You're not a lesser Christian if you don't. A.W. Pink once said that there are mainly two doctrines in Christianity that have to be kept if you're going to call yourself a Christian. They're not the only doctrines, but they are the parenthetical doctrines. They are the the doctrines that end, that begin and end it, so to speak. They are the Alpha and the Omega doctrines, and they are the two doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. And uh, the Trinity speaks, of course, as you know, about God being one or Echad in uh, in Hebrew, which means one in the plural sense. Uh, he's one God in three persons, and uh, the Incarnation lifts the second person of the Trinity, out and into the human uh, human history in terms of a real, live human being who we understand in the hypostatic union to be fully God and fully man. Well, Advent celebrates the Incarnation, and therefore Advent brings into Christian doctrine not only the Incarnation of Christ, but with an emphasis on the fact that that baby that grew up to be our Savior, was fully God and fully man. And therefore, when we go to John, for instance, chapter 1 in his prologue, and he begins it almost almost verbatim with the first words of Genesis 1. And arche, and ologos, kaiologos, prostontheo, kaitheo, and ologos. What he's talking about there is that the second person of the Trinity not only was with God, but that he was God. Well, that's oh. pretty darn important. I mean, that encapsulates, that's an incarnational prologue that encapsulates both doctrines, the Trinity and the Incarnation. Advent celebrates uh, the Incarnation. Why shouldn't we celebrate the Incarnation? Why shouldn't we do everything we can through diet, through symbol, through smells, through menus, Mm -hmm. through dress, uh, through songs, incorporate, just like Deuteronomy 6 told the Jews to do with their children, incorporate into our children, in every one of their senses, including their mind, the person and work of Christ devoted in the whole month toward all the way through to January 6th to the the angelic uh, announcement after 400 years of silence. Man, you want to talk about, you want to talk about pathos, you want to talk about... Um, drama, you want to talk about a Tolkien-esque mythology, that Tolkien says all mythology derives its mythology from the scriptures, here we go, with 400 years of silence, and now we know through uh, rabbinic writings, the whole world was expecting a savior at this time because of Daniel 9, and so Gabriel's prophecy in Daniel 9 set it up to the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, we come upon the scene. And Luke opens it up for us with the old priest Zechariah winning the lottery, getting to be priest for the first time in his life. 
and him and his wife Elizabeth are barren. God, the most godly people in the New Testament up until that time probably was Zechariah and Elizabeth, and yet they are living a contradiction because Deuteronomy 28 tells us that if you're right with God, you're, you're going to have fruit of your body, you're going to be fertile, you're going to have children, and they are right with God, and they are not having any children. Mm-hmm. Here we have this guy standing in the temple, replenishing the uh, the incense on the altar, and Gabriel appears to him, and for the first time, brother, since Malachi chapter 4, God talks again. Mm-hmm. And he announces Zechariah, whose name, by the way, means God will remember, and whose wife Elizabeth's name means God has promised. Figure that out. He speaks to this man and tells him, it's a go. You're going to have the forerunner. The Messiah is going to come. Your son's going to be the forerunner. Then just a, just three months later, a virgin in Nazareth, the, the most decadent town in all of Judea, was probably Nazareth. There's probably a byword that says, you a virgin in Nazareth? You've got to be kidding me. And yet, that's where God goes. He goes to Nazareth, finds himself a virgin that he has predestined and uh, for, for this wonderful tale, and we're rocking the ship. Why in the world was something so much better than The Hobbit, and I'm a Hobbit freak, so much better than any mythology, any tale, right there in the Scriptures, why wouldn't we want to seize the opportunity when the whole world is concentrated on Christmas to teach right. our children about the person and work of Christ. So, you know, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. I, now, the reason, I, uh, why I, people, the there, reason yeah. why people want to send me to hell in a handbasket is predominantly because of a Protestant knee-jerk reaction to Catholicism. And yes, therefore, yep. anything that was Catholic, anything that the Catholics did is anathema. Uh, not not remembering that Martin Luther was very liturgical. And so because of that, there's this knee-jerk reaction, and if Catholics do it, it's evil. And uh, yes, the Catholic Church uh, has become heretical. In some ways, it has apostatized. However, for the first 300 years, it was fighting the big fight for the creeds. It was fighting the big fight for a Christology that was biblical. And you don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater just because you just say it's Catholic. And I think there's right. a problem in a lot of Protestant churches. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because the Catholics had it done. And, and especially they commit that sin, I think, in Advent, which was celebrated, by the way, about yeah. 180 is the Feast of the Nativity in South Af- in North Africa. And so... Yeah, we heard ourselves. We we heard ourselves when we don't participate uh, in that kind of stuff. And it's, it's one of the things I appreciate about you when I first, you know, was talking with you is you're very measured and you're thoughtful in your responses. And, uh, you know, we're both, uh, I think you're, you're a reformed guy like myself. And, uh, yeah, obviously we don't agree with Catholicism, but uh, I'm with you. The, the knee-jerk reactions is just... Uh, it doesn't do anybody any good, and it's it, it opens a easy um, an easy takedown for the Catholics of us when we when we do that. Right. He's easy to counter. So uh, let's let's see, Pastor Pastor Pete. We're about out of time here. Uh, where can we get the the book? People who are listening who want to know. Do you have a website or where where can we go to? 
learn more about you and get your book. Well, how nice of you, man. Okay, well, they can go to Amazon, and they can just type in and search Green Tree, uh, is one word, by Dr. Peter Bertolero, B-E-R-T-O-L-E-R-O, and uh, it'll take you to uh, a couple of books. Uh, the, the book with the white cover and the green tree on it, that's my book. They can get it on and Amazon. Go ahead. Yeah, so I said what, what, we'll do, what we'll do is, as well as I will put a link up for the book from, from Amazon. We'll go ahead and link that on our Facebook page and uh, put, a, put a big post out. And that way, uh, those of you guys who are listening or who are interested in the book, uh, you can click that link. You can go right there. And uh, I want to encourage you guys to pick up the book. It's a, it's a great book. It's fun to do if, you know, if you're married and you got kids and stuff. It's uh, it's good. You know, for me, this is uh, this is kind of new, and it's bringing some new uh, things into Christmas that I've missed out on for, you know, a lot of years. And so uh, grateful for the book and, and grateful for, for your friendship, Pastor Pete. Oh, Devin, can I just say one more word, and that is the website. Just oh, yeah. if you guys want to get more free or enjoy the Advent booklets that uh, Devin's been talking about, I have that on site at GreenTreeCommunity.net. GreenTreeCommunity.net. You can go there and, and look at a bunch of stuff for free. Um, it's got all kinds of stuff on there about Christmas and that kind of thing. And th- th- I made that website for people like Devin and myself who don't want to be liturgical but want to reclaim some of the things we've lost over the years when it comes to the uh, calendar year. So, yeah, that that's it. Yeah, I will put a link to that up as well. Uh, maybe uh, just take a second to so talk about your church. For those maybe in the, in the area, where could they come visit your church? And where could we uh, listen to your, your sermons? I've heard uh, a few of your sermons and I've really enjoyed them, so... Uh, where okay. can we where can we find your sermons at? You can listen to my sermons for free. My sermons, uh, each Sunday sermon is, makes it onto the site around Tuesday, um, but they're on there. Not all of them are on there because we just uh, have a new site now, so we're working on it. But you can go to thelegacychurch.net and go to media, and my sermons are there. Um, and uh, the Legacy Christian Church is a uh, it's an evangelical church uh, in, in a couple of ways. We may scare some evangelicals because I've got young people that have my that they form my worship team and they go kind of crazy. Their hands are lifted up. They're saying hallelujah. They're doing all that other stuff. But man, when it comes to the Bible, it's all business, man. So, but anyway, yeah, we're here in Fresno, California, and uh, it's thelegacychurch.net if you want to listen to my sermons. All right, Pastor Pete, we will definitely uh, have you on again in the future and uh, do another topic, have you on for the whole uh, two hours, and uh, let us pick your brain a little bit. Okay, man. Peace on you and your lovely wife. You know I'm praying for you. God bless you. All right. Thanks, Pastor Pete. God bless. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and uh, take a break, and we will be right back with our friend Tony Arsenal as we are going to look at the Incarnation and uh, we are also going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. So if you have questions, uh, for example, things like uh, Jesus is God, then how does God die on the cross? Or if Jesus is God and Jesus uh, grew in wisdom, then how does that reconcile with him being omniscient? All kinds of questions come up. If you are evangelizing, if you are sharing the gospel, uh, these questions are going to come up. Even if you're sitting in your, in your house, in the living room, 
on a Saturday morning, you can be sure you could uh, be paid a visit from Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, and they will try and trap you on those questions. So stay tuned. Back with our friend Tony, and uh, we will tackle the issue of the Incarnation and the Doctrine of the Trinity. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap, Uh, and a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries in winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy, has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. All right, welcome back from our commercial break. And again, thanks to uh, Dr. Bertolano for joining us. Good conversation plan on uh, having him on again in the future. Quick update, uh, we plan on hosting a debate, we're thinking sometime uh, possibly in January, uh, between a friend of mine who's a Protestant, and, and he will be debating a Muslim, and I think it's going to be on something to the effect of whether the Bible is reliable or 
or some, something to that effect. But uh, we'll give you more uh, information on that that uh, should be in January. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. So without further ado, let me go ahead and bring my, my second guest on here. Uh, Tony is a recent graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Uh, he received a Master of Arts degree in Church History and Theology and was awarded the Baker Award for Excellence in Theological Studies. He's presented papers with the Evangelical Theological Society, Gordon-Conwell Theology Forum. His current recess, uh, I'm sorry, research interests are Trinitarian and Christological Theology, Reform Systematics, and Early Church History. So uh, he is uh, married to his wife. Uh, is it Leith? Is that, is that the name? Is... That is correct, sir. Okay. And he currently blogs at reformedarsenal.com and teaches systematic theology at his local church. And I'll tell you, folks, I've watched several of his uh, YouTube videos, and we'll, we'll make sure we get that out before... Uh, the show's over for people to go check that out. But uh, Tony is a brilliant mind. Uh, last time he was on the show, we were doing a debate with a uh, Roman Catholic on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And uh, he blew a lot of people away. Uh, he was very, uh, very, very sharp guy. So glad to have him on and uh, going to be talking about Pretty important topic, especially this time of year. Tony, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on tonight. Appreciate you coming on with the uh, short notice. Oh, no problem. I'm glad to do it. Uh, before we begin, just going to tell tell the folks, I guess, maybe uh, a little bit about how you got into apologetics and theology and uh, what, what got you interested in, in studying the doctrine of the Trinity, because I know you, you study it probably more than most kind of the average bear. Sure, yeah. I actually had a friend of mine in seminary joke one time that he would uh, be interested to see what I could do if I wasn't constantly trying to figure out the Trinity in the back of my head, what uh, what I could <laughs> devote that part of my brain to. Um, yeah, so I, I um, when I was an undergrad in college, I originally was a, a youth ministry major, and through a series of events, uh, in college, my focus shifted over to biblical studies, and so I graduated with a biblical studies degree. And to be honest, I really kind of thought that theology was sort of an abstract, um, kind of pointless exercise, and I much favored kind of the concrete rules of exegesis and parsing and Greek and all of those things. And um, it wasn't until my senior year when I, I kind of had to take a theology course that I was really forced to grapple with um uh, the reality that there are questions out there that really need answers that straight exegesis isn't necessarily going to give us. Um, so through the course of, of that uh, class, which was a sort of a senior level seminar on the Trinity, um, I, I really kind of dove into the doctrine. And one of my uh, courses also required me to write a paper on a historical figure uh, before the Reformation. And I had never really studied church history and at the time, I had this kind of hate-hate uh, relationship with Augustine, and so I never, I, I didn't really know anyone else before the Reformation, to, to my shame. And so I just picked, uh, I picked the first kind of name I found, and it was Athanasius of Alexandria. And through reading him for that paper, um, I kind of fell in love with the early church. So when it was wow. time to move on to seminary, 
I decided to do a program in church history uh, with uh, a focus towards historical theology. And so I kind of naturally shifted my focus towards Athanasius as my primary uh, kind of subject of study. And through that, I really just came to, to understand really two things, how, uh, how absolutely vital um, the doctrines of the Trinity and the hypostatic union, which are separate doctrines, but uh, I think we'll see tonight, they really uh, circle around each other in ways that we, we almost have to consider them part of the same big doctrine. Uh, so I realized how really important that was, not only from a sort of systematic theology piece, um, really all of Christian theology hangs on those two doctrines. If, if you get either of those two doctrines wrong, uh, your other, the rest of your system is just going to fall apart. Um, but I also realized that um, it was really vital for the life of the church. Um, we worship instinctively in Trinitarian ways. And um, a little-known fact about the Council of Nicaea is that the liturgy and the, doc, the, the doxology of the church was a major factor in deciding that. Um, people were kind of forced to wrestle with the fact that, well, we treat Jesus as though he's God. We worship Jesus as though he's God. And so as they were formulating these um, complex statements about who Jesus really was and who Jesus really is, they had to wrestle with that. And the Arian controversy, which I'm sure we'll touch on, really couldn't grapple with the way the church worshiped. So the first part was just how important it is. And the second part, as I started to get involved in apologetics, um, through uh, primarily through the Christian Apologetic Alliance, which I'll, I'll mention a little bit later, but um, I started to see that there's a real need in apologetic circles as well as in the church as a whole for good Trinitarian and Christological teaching. Um, a lot of times we're so zealous to go out and defend the truth of the gospel that we don't necessarily spend the time uh, understanding who the Christ we are apologizing for, um, who he really is. Um, and we tend to slip into kind of a series of different errors um, or we're confronted with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who wants to kind of challenge our preconceived notions, and we have to account for a doctrine that we, we probably have never studied in depth. So those two things kind of combined have really driven me to uh, find a, a place in the church um, where I can really bring the doctrine of the Trinity back to the forefront, uh, which is, I'm certainly not unique in this. Um, there's a lot of focus on the Trinity, a lot of focus on Christology right now, which really warms my heart. So I'm excited to kind of share tonight, and we'll talk through the doctrine. I know you've got some questions, um, but this is something that I think it goes well beyond kind of this, it's been kind of relegated to this place of sort of mysterious, semi-arcane knowledge that's almost uh, almost too lofty for the average Christian. Um, and I really think that that's, that's a tragedy. And there's a, there's a whole host of historical reasons why we've kind of left the, the doctrine of the Trinity, especially kind of in the, the back room um, as something that's there, but not really something we need. Um, I want to bring that mm. back to the front and say, no, no, this is, this is Christianity. The, the Trinity and the Christological doctrines, those are the essentials of Christianity. Um, you know, as a Reformed Protestant, Things like sola fide and sola scriptura, they are absolutely vital as well. Um, but if you take away sola fide, and some people would disagree with me, but if you take away sola fide, but you still have a Trinitarian, you still have a Christian. I just think you have a Christian who's mistaken about something really important. But if you take away the Trinity or you take away the, the hypostatic union, you don't have a Christian anymore. Um, so I really want to, to bring that out tonight. Good point. I, I like that. Um, and just let me encourage, you know, 
because I know we have a we have a pretty wide variety of people listening. We have some uh, maybe some people that study theology that go to seminary. Um, you know, don't just uh, don't just assume that uh, you kind of know everything there's to know about the, the Trinity. Is you know it can get deep fast, and there's there's a lot of things uh, we can learn from. You can probably you know easily spend your lifetime studying and learning about the doctrine of the Trinity. So. Um, right. You know whether you've been doing apologetics for a long time or whether you're new to it. Um, you know, hear us out. Hear, hear what Tony has to say. Um, so, Tony, kind of give us uh, kind of before we even dive into the doctrine, um, what are some of the things we need to know? Sure, Th- that's a great way to start. And I think one of the major issues uh, when people start to talk about the Trinity is they don't take a step back to really understand the terms that are being used. So we talk about kind of the common formula for the Trinity is, is one essence, three persons. Uh, we might say, you know, we've got hymnology where we'll say we got, you know, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, that kind of language is all over our worship. It's all over our prayers. Um, but we don't really understand what that language means. So I think when we, we we really need to kind of understand the different terms. So I, I'm going to try to stick tonight with two terms, um, and I'll, I'll kind of explain what they are. So we'll start with what's what's called essence or nature. Um, the the original Greek terminology um, there was a, a kind of a complex transition in how these terms were used. They originally came out of the Greek philosophical system with Aristotle and Plato, but as the church progressed through the fourth century particularly between the times of the Nicene Council in 325 and the Council of uh, Constantinople in 381, these terms uh, really got solidified into uh, usage in ways that are slightly different than their original kind of Aristotelian Platonic use. So the first term is uh, um, usia, which comes from the Greek. um, It's a Greek participle for being or existence. And when I say usia or when I say substance or nature, what I'm talking about is kind of the inner reality of of a person or a thing. Um, So you have uh, the example I like to use is you have Plato, right, or you've got clay or some sort of thing. You might have blue Plato. You might have green Plato. You might have some red Plato. but the essence of the Plato is the same. The blueness and the redness and the greenness are not fundamental to, to what Plato is. Those are what we would call properties or kind of auxiliary attributes. But the actual Plato itself is what we're talking about. So kind of a, uh, kind of a crude way to think of it is the substance or the usia is the thing that uh, you're made of, the, sub- the metaphysical substance that you're made of. Now, when we switch over to the next term, uh, we've got the term hypostasis or hypostasis. Um, That refers to kind of an individual instance of an usia. So I am a human hypostasis. You are a human hypostasis. My wife is a human hypostasis. We each have a human usia. Um, My usia is separate and distinct from yours, and we'll talk about the kind of the difference between how human UCI work and how the divine UCI works. But your USIA is fully distinct and discreet from mine. And, you, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about. So in, in kind of English terms, we would talk about person or entity when we're talking about USIA. Now, one of the terms that you often hear that I, I don't like to use is the word being. Um, so I'm going to avoid that tonight. But basically the, the term is problematic because 
Sometimes you say being, and it's it's roughly equivalent to what we mean by usia. And sometimes you say being, and it's roughly equivalent to what we mean by hypothesis. So, for example, I could talk about uh, something that I love in the core of my being, and I'm talking about my, my usia and the very foundational nature of who I am. We could also talk about someone being a human being or being a being, and we're talking about an individual instance of, of that kind of usia. So I try to avoid the word being. Um, you know, sometimes you see it used. Most of the time people are using it in sort of reference to essence. Sometimes they kind of use it in a way that's not clear, and, and that just muddies the water. So I try to stick with, uh, with the Greek terms when I can, but you know, sometimes that's not always uh, really a, a reasonable option. That is that is some deep stuff. I told you, folks, it goes deep fast. Um, well, let's uh, now that we kind of, I guess, have some of the preliminaries um, out of the way. What exactly, you know, you're you're sharing the gospel, and uh, someone says to you, "Well, what is the doctrine of the Trinity?" What would you sure. what would you say to that, Tony? Sure. So, so something that we have to remember is that um, theology, even though in some senses it's an abstract practice, theology really comes out of the drama of the church. So we, we see the, the drama of Scripture, we see the, the events of Scripture, and those events of Scripture force us to postulate certain kinds of propositional truth. We see Jesus uh, Christ and his life and ministry. We see him suffering on one hand. Um, and so we have to say he's genuinely human because he suffers as a human does. However, we look on a, on a different hand and we see him walking on the water and commanding nature and, and the, the various nature miracles that we see in John and Mark. And we have to say, well, Jesus is God. So those activities and those events that we see in Scripture really force us to formulate these propositional truths. So anytime someone asks me about the Trinity, I like to start with the biblical data which I'll go through here in a minute. But then also it's helpful to carry, um, carry the beginning of the church in Scripture through the first three or four centuries to show how the doctrine developed through those centuries as well. Because I think we kind of have this picture of, well, there's the Bible and what the Bible teaches, and then there's kind of this dark era that most Protestants have never heard of anybody out of, and then all of a sudden we've got the Council of Nicaea and the Trinity. And that gives rise to kind of the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code theory um, that the doctrine of the Trinity just kind of was put into place at the, the Council of Nicaea. When we actually look at the historical development, we see that that really couldn't be further from the truth. So I, I always like to start, and I'll, I'll take someone through uh, John 1 is, is a really good example, or Hebrews 1. Both of those are really great examples. Um, so we start out with John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was created that has been created apart from him, and all things were created through him, and it's referencing the Word. So when we look at that, what we see is uh, two main propositions that we're forced to come to. One is that the Word was God, right? So that's as clear as it gets. Um, you know, you've, you've got some Jehovah's Witnesses that are going to want to try to catch up on some grammatical things, um, which, you know, that's a whole different area of apologetics of understanding that. But when we really boil it down, the main proposition uh, in that verse is that the Word was God. Then immediately we also have this other um, statement that the Word was with God, right? So we have to hold those two things in tension. Um, and, you know, I've read it several places in the most, you know, recently 
Um, but really what we have with the doctrine of the Trinity is we have a, a derived doctrine that we have to hold or something similar to it in order to have uh, the ability to really look at Scripture and see it as a cohesive whole rather than a, a bunch of you know separate, disparate documents that can contradict each other and do contradict each other. If we don't have a doctrine of the Trinity, then um, you know when Deuteronomy says God is one – but then we see Matthew saying, you know, baptize, recording Christ saying, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we don't have something like the doctrine of the Trinity, those two verses can't cohere together. Yeah. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me yeah. so far? Yeah, absolutely so does, once, yep. once you've kind of gone through the, the um, foundational biblical data, you know, you can take them to various places in Colossians, talks about how, um, the world was created through the word, or through the Son, and all things hold together in Him. You go to Hebrews one, uh, it says, you know, all things again are created through Him. Uh, he's the very impression, or the exact exact impression of the Father's nature. Um, clear statements in the Bible that talk about the Father being one kind of entity, and the Son being another entity, but then both being God, but not two gods. We can then kind of move into the early church era. We can look at how, you know, initially the scriptures were understood to be uh, inerrant, inspired documents, but they were a collection of documents that even though um, the early church wouldn't have necessarily affirmed that they could contradict each other or that they did, in the mind of the early church, these were still a collection of documents. As we move through the first and second, or through the second and third centuries, and various groups are starting to, to collect these documents into a cohesive whole, you know, response to the Marcionite controversy, where Marcion basically just threw parts of the Bible out because he didn't think they fit. The church okay. responds by saying, "No, uh, this is scripture. This is not. You can't just declare something not scripture." As we start to see the scriptures being viewed as a cohesive whole rather than these kind of individual documents, the church is really forced to to wrestle with the biblical data in a way that it hadn't before. So as we come into the second century, the end of the uh, end of the third century, or end of the second century, excuse me, we've got Tertullian who's writing probably in about 180, um, and he's writing things like, uh, "We know that the Son is." Um, is of the same essence as the Father. We know that, you know, there are three in the economy of God, there are three persons, yet there is one essence, or there are three subsistences, yet there is one substance. And so what we see is throughout the whole course of the early church, a pretty static, stable confession of two important facts. Basically the Trinity, that God is, uh, there is one God, yet there are three persons, and then a parallel confession that Jesus Christ is uh, genuinely God and genuinely man, yet he is one person. Now, you have kind of the Bart Ehrmans of the world who want to try to say, well, no, there was all these different views, and there was this really kind of chaotic milieu of different positions in the early church, and orthodoxy won out eventually, but you know, how, who are we to say that the church got it right? Well, that just doesn't really bear up to the historical, uh, the historical reality, the church kind of uniformly confessed that, and as certain figures, um, you know, you've got Sibelius coming in and saying, well, no, I think that God is like this. And the church saying, nope, God is not like that. That's not what we've believed. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how we worship. Um, putting down these controversies. What we get to in the fourth century 
is um, an, kind of an unprecedented level of Christian freedom. When uh, Constantine declares that Christianity is no longer illegal and that it's now illegal to persecute Christians, Christians are free to move about in the empire and discuss things in open ways that they hadn't been before. They were now less focused on avoiding being burned at the stake or fed to the lions and can sort of sit back and hammer out some of these issues that um, were important to them, but just were not as important as trying to stay alive. So in 325, uh, the Council of Nicaea is called to respond to Arius's uh, proclamation that the sun was a creature. And the church really sits down for the first time as the whole church and says we really need to produce some sort of document that explains what we believe and put some boundaries and some fences up to help protect the church against falling into some of these errors. So that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. If you're to sum it up for somebody, it's a it's a derived um, doctrine that we have that we put in place in order to make sense of the biblical data, and it's there to protect us from falling into error. And it's really important because, as I said earlier, these doctrines that we're talking about tonight are the difference between a Christian and not a Christian. The reason that a Mormon is not a Christian is because they don't believe that there is one God. They believe that there is multiple gods and that there's a theoretically infinite number of gods. The reason that the Jehovah's Witness is not a Christian is because they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he's a creature. So it's important that we understand these and we see the Trinity as safeguards against these errors. Because if we fall into these errors, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow, but if we fall into these errors, we're at the risk of hellfire. Um, if you say that Jesus is in God and you believe that, then you've now kind of dismissed the whole of Christian salvation as God with us coming into our situation and dying on our behalf and being raised for our justification. You've just gotten rid of that. And so now you're probably left with something akin to a creature who shows us how to work really hard so we can get to God, which is exactly what Jehovah's Witness theology teaches. So it's important that we get this. So it serves the function of allowing us to grapple with and um, affirm all parts of Scripture without contradiction, as well as uh, allowing us to have these safeguards for the faithful in order to protect us from going into these other kinds of um, errors. That's good. I, I like that. Let me, let me ask you this, because you had brought up with uh, kind of with the Council of Nicaea and Dan Brown and this kind of stuff. Um, you know, recently, Ligonier uh, released this study that they did and they were talking about, uh, well, they were showing how few Protestants um, recite the creeds or study the confessions or anything like that. Um, though it's, I, I was talking with, with a guy today about that, and I think it really depends on the the circles of evangelicals that you're you're running with. Uh, I grew up in an Assembly sure. of God church and uh, never heard anything about the creeds or confessions. But how, how important um, is it? Uh, as Protestants, that we study some of these historic creeds and uh, confessions, especially like regarding with the with the Trinity and that. Uh, I think it's absolutely vital. Um, and, and as I said, the the if the doctrines are a fence to keep us from error, the creeds are kind of the paint that gets put on the outside of that fence. The bright, you know, the warning sticker that gets put by the by the edge of the the cliff that says, "Don't go any farther than this." Um, so when you have, you know, and, and all of the all of the Protestant traditions to some extent come out of the Reformation, and all of them affirm these creeds. Um, there are some right. kind of radical Anabaptist traditions, and some sort of what you might call low church Baptist 
uh, traditions that want to kind of say, well, I don't affirm these creeds. Uh, but in reality, every church has a creed. It's just a difference as to whether you've got it written down for someone to, to kind of scrutinize or whether it, it exists in the head of the pastor. Um, so I think that the creeds themselves are wonderful, brilliant, faithful uh, summaries of Scripture. Um, Athanasius is quoted, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he's quoted at one point kind of saying, well, these fools ask for a council. Uh, we don't really need a council, but you know, the, the creed that we've come out of the Nicene Creed with, or the Nicene Council with, is so faithful to Scripture that if you just read it and you didn't know where it came from, you would think it was Scripture. Um, which really, wow. you know, if you look at the Nicene Creed, it really is the way that it feels. You're reading it, and it feels, uh, it feels like kind of a doxological expression you might see at the end of one of Paul's letters, or it feels like part of, you know, some of it feels like part of a, a, the creedal structures you might see in some of Paul's recitations of early creeds in First Corinthians about the resurrection. You know, he suffered for our, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, he came for us in our salvation. Was born of the Virgin Mary. All of these these things are part of the biblical account, part of the history, like I said, the the doctrine comes out of the dogma to kind of, or the dogma comes out of the um, the drama to kind of steal a little bit from Michael Orton's way of looking at it. Is we see these historical events throughout the creed. So anytime that I I encounter a church that um, wants to say we we don't no creed but the Bible, I'm immediately kind of leery of that um, because. Yeah that church right there just affirmed a creed that's not in the Bible. So that church has a blind spot to to something that's a foundational part of the church that they don't even recognize. Um, The statement, no creed, but the Bible is a creedal statement. Um, And, and ultimately, you know, if you put someone in, in a room with the Bible and say, come out, you know, come at me here and tell me who God is and what God is like, because of the, the noetic effects of the fall, how sin has tainted our knowledge and our ability to look at the world uh, in clear ways, they're going to come out with some sort of heresy usually. Um, and it's going to probably be around the Trinity of some sort. Right. I remember going to, uh, I've got a, a good friend who is a uh, Anglican minister. I remember going to his church and, uh, you know, they recite the creeds. And, you know, the thing that struck me was, again, I grew up in a church with none of that. But as you're doing the creeds and you're saying the creeds uh, every week in church, it is really forcing you to do theology. And it's forcing you to think about certain things, like within the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think, I think that's one of the important things about it, because, again, it's going to depend what, what circles you run in. But I never, that I remember, uh, growing up, I never heard sermons on the doctrine of the Trinity or justification by faith alone you know, these these kind of things. So I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I think the creeds just, um, they make you think about the Trinity. They make you do theology, so to speak. Yeah, and I think one of the things that some Protestants kind of, um, they kind of balk at is they, they look at the creeds and they see words like essence and, you know, hypostasis and these philosophical terms, they want to go, well, I don't understand why we're using these philosophical terms. They're not even in the Bible. Um, Well, that's true for many of the theological terms that we use. It's also true of every single English word that we use. It's also true of just about all the things that we say to describe who God is and what, what God is like. Um, We very readily use terms that are not found directly in the Bible to describe and explain what the Bible is trying to communicate. Um, And that's really kind of the task of theology is to to take the Bible and look at it and say, well, 
the Bible is communicating something. It's communicating it in a variety of ways, and its intention is not to provide us with a coherent system. That's not what the Bible is intended to do. The purpose right. of the Bible is to equip us for every good work, to you know teach us, reproof us, and to equip us for the things that God has for us. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not a place to step back and say, okay, well, the Bible teaches this about salvation over here in, in Isaiah, and it teaches this about salvation over here in Micah, and we've got this piece about salvation up here in Romans. So we know that the Bible's saying one thing, so how do I explain that those three statements are all saying something similar to what um, – to each other or are complementing each other. And that's really, you know, the task of systematic theology. And that's really, that's really all that was done at the Council of Nicaea. They basically took Deuteronomy 6.4, which says there's one God and God is one. And they took John 1.1 1, 1, and it says that the word was with God and the word was God. And they said, all right, what do we, what do we have to do to make sure that these two things don't stand in contradiction of each other? And what we get is the doctrine of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed. Hmm. Very good. Very good. Let's uh, let's move on to the second question. What we'll do is um, about quarter after seven, we'll take a quick break. And what I'll do is I'll give out the number for you guys that are listening. Um, you know, if you have questions, we, we want to hear from you. Um, maybe you're a Mormon or maybe you're a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim and you've got some questions. You know, you don't have to agree with us to call. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, also, if you're a Christian and you have questions, you know, we're told to uh, to share the gospel, and especially in America, you live in a culture where uh, it's just kind of more antagonistic every day towards uh, the things of God. And so if you're going to share the gospel, you're going to run into objections, and you're going to need to know how to answer some of those objections. So just, you know, be thinking of uh, of some questions maybe that you could uh, call and ask Tony. So we'll go to take a break in about five minutes or so. Tony, what is the Incarnation? Sure. So the, the, the incarnation is, um, it's another one of those words that people sometimes get a little bit upset about because the word incarnation is not actually in the Bible. But if you break down the word uh, into its parts, you've got the, the prefix in, which just means in, and then you've got carnation, which is not a flower, uh, even though it sounds like it's not a baby formula. Uh, but car, carne is the Latin root word for flesh. So the word, the, the word incarnation literally, literally means the infleshment. So it's the word we use to describe what happens in John 1.14, where it says the word became flesh or the word took on flesh. Um, and it just refers to the, uh, the, the event in history where the second person of the Trinity took to himself and added to himself a genuine and complete human. Okay. That, uh, that does help. But can, uh, what, talk to us maybe a little bit about those who would say, well, that's uh, that's illogical. You know, the atheists are going to say, you know, God becoming a man. That's that's irrational or illogical. What do you what do you say when when you hear that kind of objection? Uh, you there, Tony? All right, we. Okay, there he is. <laughs> All right, Tony, you there? Sorry about that. Uh, Tony, are you there? 
let's do this. We will go ahead and take our commercial break now. Tony's having a little technical problem, so that will give us a chance to go ahead and take a break. Uh, encourage people to call in if you got a question, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. And uh, would love to uh, hear from you and give you a chance to talk to Tony and ask your question. Be back in a few minutes. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, folks, and we are back. Sorry about that. A little technical difficulties. Uh, we are back with Tony, and uh, again, we give out the number if you have a question. Uh, the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Are you there, Tony? I am. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. That uh, that things happen. Um let me see here. Yeah, let's get kind of back to the question I was asking. Um, so those who are going to say, kind of regarding the incarnation, that it is illogical or it is irrational, how do you how do you respond to that? Sure. So most of the time, people who are saying that the incarnation or the Trinity uh, is illogical or irrational. Usually uh, what they mean is something more along the lines of um, it's, it's difficult to understand or it's more difficult to understand than is reasonable. Um, there are, are very few who want to actually point at uh, kind of a technical, logical contradiction. And usually this comes in the form of um, a violation of the law of non-contradiction. So the law of non-contradiction simply says that something cannot be A and not A at the same time in the same way. So I can't say that something is both a circle and not a circle at the same time in the same way. Um, if 
something is a circle in one way and not a circle in another way, that is not a contradiction. So, for example, I have a soda can on my desk. Uh, if I look at it from the top, it is a circle in that way. If I look at it from the side, it's not a circle. Uh, so that's not a logical contradiction because it's not a circle in the same, uh, at the same time in the same way. So when we look at the doctrine of the, you know, kind of start with the Trinity, is people want to say, well, how can something be one and three at the same time? And what they're trying to say is one is not three. So it's it's both one and or it's both three and not three at the same time and in the same way. Um, however, it, that really doesn't work for uh, for Trinitarianism because what we want to say is that God is in one way three, in that He's three distinct, discrete persons or hypostases. However, God is also one in that God is one uh, one essence or one usia. So right there, the logical contradiction falls away. Now, that doesn't mean you don't still have a little bit of work to do to try to try to explain and understand what it means for God to be three persons sharing one essence, but the logical contradiction aspect of that falls away. In the same way, people kind of want to draw a distinction in uh, the hypostatic union and say, well, human is uh, one thing and God is another thing, and so human and God is not human. So they want to say, well, how can Jesus be human and not human at the same time and in the same way? And in reality, what we see in the incarnation is not um, a single person who is both human and not human at the same time in the same way. What we see is a, a divine person who bears a div the divine nature and then is adds to himself a human nature later. So uh, if you talk to me for any amount of time, what you'll find out is I don't really like analogies uh, when it comes to the Trinity or the Incarnation. But in this case, I think there is a fair way to talk about an analogy. And so when we talk about a nature, uh, one thing that we can uh, kind of, ex how we can explain a nature is kind of a set of attributes or a set of abilities. So it's kind of a stretch, but I, I like to talk about Spider-Man. So Spider-Man... Right? Spider-Man is a human person. He's got all the normal capacities that a human person has. When he gets bit by this radioactive spider, he gets added to him these other capacities that a normal human doesn't have. We could call that the Spider-Man nature. So Spider-Man is both human and spider-human at the same time and in the same way. But that's not to say that um, the attributes of being Spider-Man somehow cancel out the attributes of being human. So what we have in Christ is we have uh, a divine person who has a set of divine abilities and prerogatives and things like that, and then he adds to, them, adds to himself a human nature, and with that human nature comes a set of, of prerogatives, abilities, limitations um, that also coheres in the singular person. And we get that definition out of a council in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon, which comes up with this definition to say that Christ is one person who fully bears two natures that are uh, not separable, uh, but they're also not confused. So they don't collapse into one nature, but we also cannot pull them apart so far that they constitute two persons. They could cohere in the person without confusion or mingling. Nice, nice. That's good. So that's, because I, and that gets into the the hypostatic union and that. Um, did you want to add any, anything to the hypostatic union? I know that was on the incarnation, but did you want to add anything else on sure. the hypostatic union? Sure. In in a lot of ways, the hypostatic union and the incarnation are the same thing. So when we talk about the incarnation, we're really talking about the event of the incarnation. We're talking about the historical events that happened in time 
of the divine person taking on a human nature. When we talk about the hypostatic union, what we're talking about is sort of the theological explanation for how that's possible. And we get the word hypostatic union or the words hypostatic union not because there's a union of hypostases or multiple hypostases. Um, Sometimes people talk about the Trinity and they use the word hypostatic union because they're talking about the union that the three divine hypostases share. It's not the right way to use the term. What we're talking about is the union of two natures in a single hypothesis in the person of Christ. So um, the the, the kind of arch heretic of this heresy was Nestorius. And now there's some dispute whether or not Nestorius actually held this view or not. But the main error that was being espoused under his name was that Christ's natures were so separate from each other that they actually constituted uh, two persons. So you'd have the divine, the divine Son of God and the human Christ. So that's where we, we run into problems with, um, you know, and this is a way that it very commonly slips into evangelical language when they're trying to explain this, is they'll say, well, and this kind of leads into one of the questions for later, that, so I'll, I'll be brief until we get back to it, but they'll say, well, the human Jesus died on the cross, but the divine Jesus didn't. Well, there's only one Jesus. There's only one person. So it's the person who died, not the nature, and not the you know not the human nature, not the divine nature. That's not to say we can't speak about Jesus dying as a human. It was a part of his human nature that allowed the person to die. It, so persons who are of the divine nature can't die, but he could die as a human because he was a human. Um, and we got to be careful because some of our reformed heroes, you know, um, one of the commercials that was playing uh, while we were trying to get back online was R.C. Sproul. I love R.C. Sproul. I kind of think of him like grandpa. Um, but he is one of those people who wants to say that God didn't die on the cross. Well, we have a big problem if God didn't die on the cross. Um, the problem is that if, if God didn't die on our behalf, then we are still in our sins. Um, you go back to the 12th century with uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury. He writes this little book called Why the God-Man, and his argument, which still holds true today, is that only God could provide a sufficient sacrifice to atone for all of the sins of those he would save. Um, One man dying might be able to uh, be sufficient to cover another man, maybe even two or three, but all of the sins of all of the men, um, that's probably not going to fly. So we have to have God dying on our behalf in order for us to be saved. Likewise, we have to have man dying on our behalf in order to have a a proper substitute for us. So if we don't have uh, a single person dying on the cross who is both God and man, we lose salvation entirely. Okay, so so one of the questions that would come up probably with the uh, Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon when uh, hearing that, they would say, um, or at least least what I'm thinking is, um, God is immutable, right, unchanging in his essence, nature, uh, not as necessarily his activities, but his attributes. Um, so you wouldn't say that God is uh, changing or something, right, some kind of intrinsic change. Sure. So what we have to be cautious of is uh, understanding immutability. So in its kind of raw, unadulterated form from kind of platonic philosophy, which is usually what people end up having in mind when they talk about immutability, is this picture of this lofty God who exists in perfection and such. So any kind of change in that, whether it's a change in behavior or a change in character or a change in nature or whatever, even an emotion, um, violates the principle of immutability. When we talk about immutability in the Christian context, 
what we're saying is that God is fundamentally um, non-contingent. There's nothing outside of God that can uh, impose change upon God. We're also saying that uh, God's essence never changes. There's no potential for change within God's essence because God's essence is simple. And so it's either entirely actual, meaning there's no potential for it to change, or it's entirely potential, meaning it doesn't exist. But there's no way that there can be a balance of actual and potential. Right. Uh, otherwise, right. we've, we've done, you know, we've denied what's called the principle of divine simplicity. That, that, that's, that's a whole that's different kind of thing. Following, yeah, that's kind of following Aristotle's uh, view and, and like Thomas Aquinas and that, right, of divine simplicity, right, right. interactuality. Yeah. Okay. So you hold to that. Right. And, and I, w- I would okay. make some distinctions between the Thomistic or the, the view coming out of Thomas Aquinas and what I'm holding. Um, but the broad principle that God is simple, that there's not parts within the divine nature, um, and right. the uh, principle that because there's no parts, there's no potential for change is, uh, I think, solid. So where this plays into the incarnation is that we have a, a divine person who exists eternally and unchangingly. And what we do is we add kind of on top of is the wrong way to think about it, but for this, this conversation it works. We kind of add on top of that divine person a new nature that is capable of changing. And so what we have is the person of Christ is not changing in, in his divine essence. His divine essence right. eternally remains the same. However, the human yeah. nature changes throughout Christ's life. It changes, obviously. Right. Um, I would affirm that Christ's human nature, I've had this discussion, it always seems like it comes up around Christmas, you know, did Jesus have Mary's DNA or did he not? Um, what, where did the Y chromosome come from? Some of those kinds of speculative questions. And I'm a firm believer that Jesus' divine nature, human nature, started as an egg in Mary's ovary, the same way all of our human nature started. It didn't start as a sort of uh, ex nihilo creation that just got implanted into Mary at some point. And so we have to affirm that the human nature of Christ changes over time. But right. that doesn't represent a change in the fundamental person of who the Son is, the, the second person of the Trinity is. Um, a way to kind of think about it is I change my clothes all the time. Um, I change my clothes every day. I would hope that our listeners change their clothes every day. Um, the fact that I put on different clothes you know, every day does not represent a fundamental change in who I am underneath those clothes. That's not to say um, I, I don't want to draw that analogy too far out because Jesus' human nature is not just uh, an outfit that he wears and can take off. Jesus' nature becomes a part of his person uh, in a way that our clothes don't. But it's not completely alien for us to think about something outside of us being added to us that doesn't fundamentally change who we are in our very essence. Right. Right. Okay. That's that's good. So, um, so when you when we're saying that, for example, Jesus dies on the cross, um, but you brought something up about R.C. Sproul. I read an article also that you had, you had wrote about this. Um, so what is it exactly that someone like R.C. Sproul, is, is is he denying that the, that the, I don't even know how to talk about it, because it's not like you can't say the human nature didn't die, because obviously the human nature did die. But uh, sure. how, well, what, what exactly was it you were, you were clarifying? Sure. So, so one of the things that we have to remember is there are things that are appropriate to say about natures, and there are things that are appropriate to say about persons. 
Mm-hmm. Natures don't do things. They don't, they don't verb. They don't act. They don't eat. They don't drink. They don't sleep. They don't think. They don't do anything. Natures are not subjects of verbs. Persons are subjects of verbs. So that was part of the problem with the Nestorian heresy is that Nestorius was saying, well, no, the divine nature of Jesus or the human nature of Jesus was born of the virgin, but the divine nature was not. Well, no, the person was born. So what what we need to emphasize is that it's an action that's either you know happening to or is a person is doing. It's the singular person of Christ that is uh, engaging in an action or having an action engaged. So it is the person, the second person of the Trinity being born of the virgin, the second person of the Trinity hungering and thirsting in the wilderness and combating Satan with scripture. It's the second person of the Trinity who didn't, uh, who thirsted from the uh, cross and then ultimately died and was raised. So that's, like I said earlier, that's not to say that we can't say that Jesus died in his humanity. Um, Just like I could say, if I, you know, I get out of bed in the morning and I kick the dresser on accident, I can say, I hurt in my toe, um, but that's not to say that my toe is some abstract concept that hurts in and of itself. I as a person hurt, but the hurt is localized to my toe. So in a sense, we can talk about Jesus in the same way and say um, he hurts and his hurt is localized in his human nature as a component of his divine of his uh, hypostasis. So oh, that's, wow. that's where we need to be careful. Um, so that's, I think, one of the mistakes that I, I think R.C. Sproul makes in his um, the article that I referenced, but I, I think he makes, is that he seems to want to pull those natures out and uh, treat them as though they were persons. So the divine nature of God can't die, because if the divine nature of God died, his argument goes, then reality would cease to exist because the divine nature ceases to exist. But I think that misses this move that we need to make to understand that persons are actors and agents and subjects, not natures. The second thing that I I think um, is missing in Sproul's treatment is he wants to somehow say that death is the cessation of existence. But when we talk about what it means for a human to die, we very rarely talk about them ceasing to exist. If we're Christians, we don't talk about them ceasing to exist. Um, you know, right. we're both Reformed Christians. I would think that a large population of your audience is, so I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. But when we say a Christian dies, they don't stop existing. Their spirit goes to be with the Lord. They're with the Lord right. in spirit, and then someday they'll be reunited with their body and live in, in um, you know, live in bliss and joy in, in a risen world with the risen Christ. Um, when a, a non-Christian dies, we still don't talk about them ceasing to exist. We talk about their spirit being transported to hell and suffering the anguish of separation from God. And then in the resurrection, somewhere down the road, they will be reunited with their bodies again, and they will proceed into everlasting uh, torment, which I think is sort of self-imposed uh, sinful separation. I don't want to paint that as some kind of torture chamber where you know God's poking them with forks and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, right. but we don't talk about them ceasing to exist. So when we now take that anthropology of what death is for a human person, we move that over to what, what we say about Christ. What we now have is death is a human person's body being separated from their human, human soul or spirit or immaterial component. Um, well, that happened for Christ. His body was laying in a tomb. His spirit upon death was separated from his, his human spirit was separated from his body. And so genuine, human death happened to the second person of the Trinity. 
his human person or his human body and his human spirit were ripped asunder in a way that's not natural. And then in his resurrection, as a prefiguring of our resurrection, the, those two parts of his human nature were reunited and made whole and ultimately glorified in Christ. So I think that we have to be really cautious when we talk, because even just in that, uh, that discussion, which in the grand scheme of things is a relatively simple theological discussion to have, there's all these different moving parts of our various systems. You know, we touched on anthropology, we touched on what death means, we touched on eschatology and what the final state is. And we get it wrong if we misunderstand that Christ as a singular person has a human nature, not that somehow Jesus is the union of two persons. And I think Sproul's position, um, even though it doesn't explicitly make Jesus two persons, it does treat Jesus as two subjects because it separates those two natures out in a way that I think is unhelpful. Um, I'm not saying R.C. Sproul is a heretic. Um, like I said earlier, I kind of think R.C. Sproul like Grandpa. Um, you know, You're he's right. the kind of guy that has really shaped my thinking. Um, you know, when I come back from the commercial and I hear R.C. Sproul, I get this warm thought in my head, and I'm looking at my phone to see if the next Renewing Your Mind has dropped yet. So I, I really respect <laughs> Sproul. Um, and he, he does right. some of the same kinds of errors, and some of it is because um, as as a f- sort of philosophically-minded individual, he really comes out of the Thomistic, Thomas Aquinas tradition um, of sort of philosophical theology, and that, that has really uh, become clear as I, I understand how Aquinas thinks of the Trinity versus sort of the Nicene uh, conception of the Trinity. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that happened in history. Good stuff. Let me let me ask you this. This kind of why we're on the topic is, so how would that model kind of compare to someone like William Lane Craig, um, or J.P. Moreland? I know, do they have a? Would you say they have a different model of the Trinity, or am I am I sure. missing something? Well, uh, in sort of a strange uh, twist of fate, R.C. Sproul and William Lane Craig actually have really similar. Uh, models of the Trinity, and, and I think that they fall into some of the same kinds of pitfalls. Um, what, broadly speaking, there's there's two different ways to talk about the Trinity. We can talk about the Trinity as um, one nature in three persons, and we, we kind of elevate the nature as our beginning point in the discussion. Or we can sort of talk about the flip side of that and talk about the three persons who share a single nature. And not minimize, uh, I don't think minimize the nature, but really start our discussion with the the persons of the Trinity. Um, that's, it's not necessarily accurate to say it's an East versus West thing. Um, that's an, an old kind of, um, an old kind of hermeneutic that gets applied to history that hasn't really borne out. But it's a good, uh, it's a good kind of device for discussion. So we have these broad kind of Western Thomistic understanding that elevates the nature also coming out of Augustine in some ways. And we have the Eastern, more Eastern understanding, which comes out of the Cappadocian fathers, which really starts with the person of God, the father. Now the Thomistic understanding, because it elevates uh, the nature as the, the beginning of our discussion has this tendency to sort of treat the nature as a person. So that's where you get um, R.C. Sproul, who will talk about God, um, God being a being and using that word being in kind of that hypostatic way. Um, you get William Lane Craig, who wants to say that the three persons of the Trinity are kind of components of God and that the three of them sort of form God together. Um, and so what this does is it sort of, 
we start to treat and subtly act as though the one divine nature was actually a person. And so we're either forced to have this sort of strange conception where we understand that there are four divine persons, where the divine nature is its own person, and then the three persons are also persons. Or I think more commonly, we sort of relegate the divine persons down almost to like um, modes of existence or centers of consciousness or something like that, where you have God, but within God, within the one God, there's these three uh, distinctions that happen. If you flip that over to the Eastern way of talking, which I think is uh, closer to the biblical text, certainly closer to the way that the Nicene Creed is formulated, um, what we see is we have these three divine persons who radically share a single nature. So I mentioned earlier that when we're talking about uh, natures, you and I have a fully distinct separate nature. That's not the case when we talk about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They don't just have the same kind of nature as each other. They're actually sharing a single nature. And that's how we retain monotheism is that it's not three separate, fully distinct entities that are completely independent of each other. It's actually three persons that completely share a single nature and and a single will. And there's this interpenetrating divine, it's called perichoresis, uh, in which the persons are so uh, intimately unified with each other that we can't properly say that they're three gods. And I think that when you have uh, William Lane Craig and R.C. Sproul coming out of kind of the Western Augustinian Thomistic tradition, they fall into some of the same kinds of errors that we see uh, of kind of a semi-modalism where we have the one divine person uh, and we have these sort of three subdivisions or three centers of consciousness or three revelations, um, it starts to sound a lot like modalism. Um, there's wow. a very fine line between saying three centers of consciousness and three uh, three masks or three roles or three revelations of God, um, which is classic modalistic language. Like I said, that's not to say that William Lane Craig is a modalist or a Unitarian or that R.C. Sproul is a modalist or a Unitarian. There are all sorts of pitfalls on my side of the road or on the eastern side of the road that we can fall into of tritheism. Um, it's very important to remember that even though we can swing to one side, there's a ditch on the other side of the road too. So I'm constantly having to kind of push myself back because I have a tendency in my theology to overemphasize the distinctiveness of, um, of the persons such that it gets to be a trick sometimes to explain in my system how they're actually one God. Um, so that's a constant tension. And that, that actually is a, there's a good quote um, that I'll just read to you. And it's, it's from, um, I believe it was one of the Cappadocians. I think it was Basil, but he says, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illuminated by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And basically what he's saying there is that we swing between these poles and we, we see that I want to think about God as one God because I affirm monotheism. But if I go too far, then I've started to go past the boundaries of Trinitarian monotheism, and I've swung into Unitarianism. So I start to swing the pendulum back, and I get to the point where I'm thinking about the three, and if I go too far, I've gone past Trinitarian monotheism all the way into Triceism, and i got to let it swing back. And in reality there's probably some center point between those two poles. That's the sweet spot. But if, as long as I stay within the boundaries of what the Nicene Creed has given me, that there is not three gods and that there are not, there is not one person. If I'm anywhere in that middle point, then I'm within orthodoxy and I'm within that sense that the doctrine of the Trinity sets up to protect me 
from those edges. All right. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Got about twenty minutes left. Would love to hear from you guys if you have any questions about uh, some of the things me and Tony are talking about, or maybe you disagree with some of the things that have been said. Twenty minutes left. Call in and let's uh, let's have a good friendly discussion. Uh, Tony, one of, the, one of the things you just brought up was uh, modalism. And uh, I'm not actually from the South. I am uh, from the West Coast. But one of the things that amazed me right away when I moved out here was how many oneness Pentecostal churches there are out here. Um, yeah, there several, really are. Several of them. So talk to us about that. What is kind of maybe what is oneness Pentecostal's view of uh, the Trinity, and how do we engage with them kind of when we're when we're evangelizing? Or sure. Do we need so to evangelize? That, well, and and the question of do we need to evangelize really comes down to are they Christians who have the gospel or are they not Christians who need the gospel? Um, and I think right. in the case of oneness Pentecostalism, we could say this about Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons as well. They are absolutely not Christians, and they absolutely need the gospel. And in the case of oneness Pentecostalism, um, the error that they make is is not new uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It actually might be the first Trinitarian heresy that cropped up was called modalism. And it was something that uh, we see primarily in the writings of Tertullian as he's responding to it. So we're back into that 170, 180 range. So this is an incredibly early Trinitarian heresy. And it was put forward mostly from what we can tell by a bishop named Sibelius. Excuse me. And um, Sibelius basically wanted to argue that what we have in the New Testament or in the whole Bible is a single singular person God who simply reveals himself in three different ways. And so the, the reason we want to uh, we use the language we do um, is because it, it comes from Greek drama. So the, the word used, the Greek word, you know, we talk about hypostasis being person. We talk about usia being nature. The Greek word persona um, is, is the word they would use to describe the mask that a Greek dramatist would wear. So you'd have a single actor, and this was part of the um, part of the delight of a Greek comedy was that the actor who was playing the parts was the same actor. So there was there was humor in the fact that the actor would go behind the stage and put on a mask, and he would come out and he would do part of his bit. He would go back and he would come out and he would play the villain, and he would be fighting himself. And so that was part of the comedy. And so what we see in these modalistic schemas, and in one is Pentecostalism, which is sometimes called Jesus-only Pentecostalism, is we see God is playing these roles. He's wearing these masks. Um, he's, he's in the Old Testament, he's the father, he's the judge, he's the lawbringer. He goes behind the stage in the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, and he comes back and he's Jesus, and he's wearing the mask of grace and the mask of redemption. And then he goes back behind the stage for a little while, uh, you know, after Jesus sends, and he comes back a few days later as the Holy Spirit, and he's wearing the mask that is about the building of the church and the empowerment of believers. And on the surface, that seems like a reasonable explanation of what's going on in Scripture. Um, the problem with it is that, though there's several problems, the first big problem is we don't really know anything about God. 
in a Greek drama, if you don't ever see the actor without his mask on, you don't know anything about the actor. It could be anybody coming out from behind that stage. Um, so there's that problem is that we don't truly ever know God. The other problem is that we lose things like the incarnation. We lose things like the crucifixion because it's not God taking on flesh and dying as one of us and being raised as one of us and mediating as one of us. It's God pretending to be human for a while, shedding that flesh, and then coming back as the Holy Spirit. Um, so one of, one of the things that I've really been learning over the last, really the last year as I've been kind of studying the book of Hebrews is really how vital the intercessory work of the Son currently on our behalf is. The whole book of Hebrews is really, the main point of Hebrews is Jesus Christ is our high priest who is making mediation before the Father. Well, if Jesus Christ and the Father are the same person, there's no mediation going on. So you have to just dismiss the entire book of Hebrews as not making sense. Um, on top of that, you've got the kind of classic example is the baptism. The Father is speaking from heaven, the Son is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit is descending as a dove. So we've got all three persons on the stage at the same time. The oneness Pentecostal can't really make sense of that. They have to try to say, well, God was, you know, he was kind of playing a part. He was, he was sort of the ventriloquist dummy. Jesus was in the water, but he was speaking from the, the sky as well. Um, you really have these kinds of problems you can't account for. Um, and so, like I said, you know, our understanding of who Jesus is really drives our understanding of how Jesus saves us. And so just like the Jehovah's Witness Christ is really a, you know, a semi-divine creature who shows us how to live right so we can earn our salvation through good works by following in obedience, the oneness Pentecostal Jesus is really kind of the same thing. That's why people like T.D. Jakes, who's a classic oneness Pentecostalist, uh, you tend to see the prosperity gospel and uh, oneness Pentecostalism go hand in hand because by and large, the Jesus who is the Holy Spirit for them is more about making our lives good now. It's more about living and dwelling and empowering us now. They don't tend to emphasize that, that eternal salvation aspect of it. It's all about what God can do for me right now. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. So I think that, that we absolutely need to engage them. And, and like I said, the simplest, simplest way to engage in one is Pentecostal is just to go to the baptism accounts and say, explain to me how this text works. And they'll say something like, well, the son was in the water and he kind of threw his voice and he caused the people to have a vision of the Holy Spirit who came down. And, and it, but it was really all just one person. And you let them go through their whole spiel and you, then you say, well, doesn't it make more sense that they're just three persons? Doesn't it make more sense that the father really was speaking to the son and the Holy Spirit really was descending like a dove? And if they're reasonable, which a lot of times they're, they're not, they are indoctrinated into their own system. But if they're reasonable, they really are forced to go, you know, that, that really does make a lot more sense. That does make better sense of the, uh, of the doctrine. Then you can take them to John 17 and the high priestly prayer where it's talking about how the Father loved the Son and glorified the Son before there was time. Well, if the Father right. is the Son, then what sense does it make to say that the, son lo the Father loved the Son and gave him glory before there was time? if they're the same person. Mm. Uh, and that even Great takes point. us back be, kind of before the economy of the Trinity or the, the activity towards creation of the Trinity to how the Trinity is in eternity. Um, the actual fundamental relational makeup of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit loving, loving each other as discrete, genuinely distinct persons, um, not as some sort of 
internal dialogue going on in the mind of God. That's good. I I, uh, I like that explanation. It's uh, I'd say it wasn't uh, I wasn't prepared for how many uh, <laughs> Pentecostals are still around, but it's still a pretty good sized uh, you know denomination with United Pentecostals and uh, several breakoffs from that. So. Yeah, and, and I think I think it's important uh it's important to note not all Pentecostals and I know you know this, but it's good for the, the, the listeners to hear this, not all Pentecostals are oneness Pentecostals. But um there is a level of um affinity between the really hardcore Pentecostals who wanna, in my opinion, overemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit in, in today at right. the expense of at times the expense of um, the role of the son as mediator, the role of the son as a historical figure who who really made atonement for his people. Um, there's affinities there, but they're distinct. And so, any time that we have a doctrine that um, that serves to imbalance the Trinity in any way, um, to give priority to one person over the other and their acts towards creation, we've got a doctrine that's veering off course. So. Um, as early as, you know, Irenaeus in the second century, right around that same time as Tertullian, we've got him talking about how God the Father saves his people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and applies that salvation to his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That follows all the way through the Nicene Creed, all the way into the Reformation, where you've got John Calvin talking about how the Father is the first principle, and that he acts through his Son, and that his uh, his action is applied to his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so what we see is that those actions of the three divine persons are always in concert. They're always uh, you, they're always unified. They're always operating towards a singular end, and they're always orderly. What we see in some things like um, like Pentecostalism is that the activity of the spirit becomes sort of a unique overriding organizing principle for them. Well, it's not too much farther of a jump to say, well, that's be that's because Jesus and the father were active in different time periods and now the spirit is active. And then it's just one more short skip to say, well, that's because they're the same person. So that's kind of how the progression of, of Pentecostalism to oneness Pentecostalism happened is they made those relatively small steps out of line until all of a sudden they're way outside of the lines. Um, and yeah. you, can, you can do the same kind of thing. It's a little bit more difficult, but you can run into the same kinds of problems. Um, for example, if you have certain streams of, um, there's certain streams of Baptist theology, which don't baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit like we're commanded to. They baptize in the name of Jesus only. Well, what's the oh, motivation wow. behind doing that? Some of the motivation behind doing that is similar to the work that happens in Pentecostalism, where it's overemphasizing the work of the Son over and against the work of the Spirit. The Son obtains salvation, but without uh, without the Spirit applying that salvation to us, we don't have it. Um, so the Son can die on the cross, and that's good and uh, and well, but without the Holy Spirit's activity in the life of a believer to apply that benefit to us and to sanctify us progressively until we reach uh, until we are glorified, you know, upon death, um, the whole system breaks down. So it's important that we remember all of those persons, uh, all the three persons of the Trinity are vital in our doxology. When we pray, 
by and large, we should be praying to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when we preach, we should be preaching, remind, remembering that salvation is the plan of the Father uh, executed by the Son and applied by the Spirit. Our our doxology, our um, our hermeneutics, everything we do as Christians should really revolve around that threefold movement of God towards his people for redemption and salvation. Um, and really that applies to all of our theology. Creation's the same way. The Father speaks the Word. The Word, uh, by the power of the Word, he creates the world, and then the Holy Spirit broods over the world and forms it. It's right there on the pages of Genesis. All three persons are active in harmony right there. So it's, it's really important as Christians that we understand that. Good stuff. Absolutely good stuff. Let's uh, let's tackle uh, one or two objections real quick. We got just a few minutes left, uh, but uh, so you're talking to your oneness Pentecostal friend, and one of the things they're going to bring up is um, this idea of well, who is Jesus praying to, um, kind of in the garden? Uh, actually, this is not the oneness Pentecostal. This would be the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, they're sure. going to ask, you know, is he is he praying to himself, type of a thing. So, sure. what do we say to those? Kind of things. Who is running the universe if Jesus is God and God came down to to be a man? Sure. I think um, there, there's really two kind of a twofold approach to that question. Is when as because of the way that uh, the Western tradition following Aquinas tends to refer to the divine nature rather than the divine persons. The word God for uh, Christians in Protestant and Catholic circles. <laughs> tends to be referring to the way that God is one. We talk about God um, as the one God. Well, the problem with that uh, from a Western perspective is that that's not really the way that the Bible uses the word God. So when we think about God, we're thinking about some, some – we tend to think of it in, in personal terms, and we shouldn't. But when the Bible says God and it's not qualified by something else, it's almost always referring to the Father. So in the garden, when Jesus is praying to God, he's praying to the Father. Um, when, and, and we see that in his prayer life everywhere else. Um, you know, he teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. When he goes to raise Lazarus, he says, Father, I know that you always hear me. So then when he goes to pray in the garden, he says, God, may this cup pass from me all of a sudden we're shifting over and going, wait a second, why is he talking to the divine nature? Well, he's not. He's talking to the Father. So the idea that Jesus was praying to himself, that, that falls flat on its, you know, right on its face of it. Is it's clear that Jesus is praying to the Father. Um, as far as where, you know, where was, who was um, maintaining the universe when Jesus was on earth, um, obviously the Father was, but also because of the way we some of our some of our popular hymns and some of our popular worship music, we talk about Jesus kind of leaving leaving heaven and um, giving up his place of prominence. And on a certain level and in a certain way, that's true. But Jesus didn't stop being omnipresent. He didn't stop being omniscient. He didn't stop upholding the, the universe by the power of his word. Um, he added to himself a human nature. And there's a level of paradox and mystery that, as Christians, we have to learn to be comfortable with because we're not going to be able to resolve it. But Jesus was, at the same time, a baby in a manger, as well as the divine ruler of all of creation holding it together by the power of his will. Those two things happened at the same time. Um, Jesus was, at the same time, uh, hanging on the cross, giving up his spirit to the Father, and 
maintaining the universe by the power of his will. So we have a tendency to separate those things and say, well, Jesus couldn't have been doing those things when he was a baby. He couldn't have been doing those things when he was hanging on the cross or when he was starving in the desert. Um, that's something that as Christians I think we really need to get past because it, it just brings all sorts of problems into the system that, that doesn't really doesn't really need to be there. Right. Good point. What are uh, what are some beginner books for those who are wanting to to learn a little bit more about the doctrine of the Trinity? Sure. I actually just finished a book by uh, Fred Sanders, who is a theologian out in California. He teaches at um, Biola, um, and it's called The Deep Things of God. Uh, kind of uh, providentially, I think, um, White Horse Inn, which is a uh, radio broadcast uh, primarily by Michael Horton, uh, is uh, part of the same organization that publishes Modern Reformation magazine. They're doing a really good series right now on the Trinity. Um, so it, uh, that's a good thing for kind of beginners to listen to as well. It's freely available. And then um, the the book um, the book I would recommend, I think every Christian should read, um, would be uh, Pilgrim Theology, which is by Michael Horton. And that's a full systematic theology, but it really is going to take take these doctrines we're talking about and show you how they, they really flow through all of the um, through all of the doctrines of Christianity. So I think those those three kinds of things can really form a good basis and a good foundation for anyone really wanting to dig into this stuff. I also have to say the, uh, oh, I, ahead, huh? I do blog as well. We mentioned earlier uh, reformedarsenal.com. Um, I tend to try to focus on Trinitarian things since that's my specialty. Um, but I, I like to make a lot of resource recommendations there as well. So it's always a good place to look and see kind of if there's stuff going on, um, what the newest thoughts in the Academy are kind of on this subject. Well, that is, that is good stuff. Uh, take a minute or so and kind of wrap this up and, and, uh, tell us again, why, why should we be studying the Trinity and, uh, yeah, give us a conclusion. Sure. So I think at the end of the day, the purpose of doing theology is to really know God, to really understand who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. And and the kind of funny analogy I like to say is, if I told you I love my wife, and then you might say something like, well, tell me about your wife. If I was to say to you, well, she's a six-foot-tall biker with lots of tattoos and a beard, you would probably be going, um, that's not what your wife looks like. And you would start to question whether I really know and love my wife if I can be so wrong about things like that. And in many ways, I think the doctrine of the Trinity kind of serves the same function, is if we really want to know God, if we really want to know the Father, we really want to know the Son, we really want to know the Spirit, we have to do the work to really understand, uh, as far as our limited, finite human minds can, who those persons really are and what they're really like. Um, if we aren't willing to do that work, then I'm not really sure we can properly say that we really love God. So I think on a on a theological level, it's really interesting and it's really important. Um, but really, theology is about thinking true thoughts about God, allowing those true thoughts about God to change who we are and allowing them to shape who we are and how we live our lives. And the doctrine of the Trinity really, in my life, has really done that. It really has motivated me to live my life in a different way in light of the doctrine of the Trinity than it was before when I was just kind of your average evangelical Christian who, you know, affirmed the Trinity but didn't really know what it meant. Now that I understand the Trinity on a different level, it shapes my prayer life, it shapes my worship patterns, it helps me to understand how I should love another person, 
Um, I should love them because of who they are, not because of what they can do for me, the way that the father loves the son, simply because of the relationship they have. So that, that that's what I would say is we want to know God, and so we should study the Trinity. All right. There you go, folks. Good show. Tony, appreciate you coming on, and uh, love to have you back on again in the future and do some more topics with you. Always a delight. And give us your website one more time. Uh, it's just reformedarsenal.com, just like it sounds. All right. There you go, folks. Tony, appreciate it, brother, and I uh, look forward to having you on again in the future. Glad to do it. Merry Christmas. You as well. God bless. Say hello to your wife for us. I will. All right, folks, that is the end of the show, and uh, probably will not be uh, doing the show until maybe after the first of the new year, uh, just because it's, you know, that time of the year with Christmas and the new year. So I just wish you guys have a Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll be back. Got a lot of stuff planned for the new year. Like I say, a few debates, uh, more uh, shows coming up. Feel free to hit us up on Facebook. Message us if you if you you know if you, for example, have any ideas of some shows that you would like to see done. Feel free to shoot us a message, and uh, we can try and work it out. Um, appreciate you guys. Keep listening. Have a merry Christmas, and God bless. <laughs>